صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Yesterday, Palestinians commemorated the Nakba, a term that refers to the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 and the Palestinians' loss of their homeland. The mass expulsion of Palestinians was overwhelming in its scope. Arab Palestine was erased and replaced with Jewish Israel. During the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, it's estimated that somewhere between 750,000 and 900,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes and became refugees. 531 villages were destroyed and Palestinian cities were purged of their Arab residents. Only 160,000 Palestinians remained in what became Israel. But Nakba Day is much more about the present as it is about the past. The Nakba is an ongoing national and personal tragedy. Generations of Palestinians have been born into destitution, statelessness and occupation. And Palestinian claims to self-determination and sovereignty continue to be denied by Israel and the international community. The Nakba didn't end in 1948, rather it's ongoing. Whether it's the denial of the inalienable right of return to the Palestinians, the ongoing siege in Gaza, the continued settlement expansion and land theft in the West Bank, or the marginalisation, demonisation and isolation of Palestinian citizens of Israel, the misery being inflicted upon the Palestinians by the Zionist colonisation of Palestine continues. Couple of key facts about the Nakba in 1948. Jews owned less than 7% of the land of Mandate Palestine. They accounted for less than 45% of the population, with the overwhelming majority of those migrating to Arab Palestine in the preceding couple of decades. The value of lost Palestinian real estate was calculated by Israeli Foreign Minister Moshe Shertok at more than a billion dollars in 1951. Millions of Palestinians remain refugees within walking distance of their ancestral homes. For decades, Israel has enjoyed impunity for its violations of international law and human rights. It should be apparent that a state that removes Palestinians from their homes in order to build settlements for Jews is a settler colonial state, a state that denies political and civil rights to Arabs because they are Arabs, is a racial state, a state that shoots unarmed civilian protesters who are under illegal and inhumane siege, is a criminal state. For many in the West, the dispossession and continued exile of Palestinians is still seen as a legitimate price to pay for sustaining the Jewish state. Whether it be the Great Return March from Gaza, resistance within the occupied territories, legal challenges within Israel, the naming of our children after our lost cities and villages, the shared memories of a magical time before the loss of Palestine, these all demonstrate the unending quest for dignity and the right of return which is at the heart of the Palestinian struggle. I'm honoured to be joined again by my dear friend Amin. Good morning, Amin. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Now, it's really impossible for us to do great, Amin, because today is the the 16th of May. Yesterday was the 15th of May, Nakba for the Palestinians. 
we spoke last week about some of your Nakba stories. How about um, we share some more with our audience? Sure, sounds, sounds good. So let's go back to Palestine and your grandmother talking about the Haganah coming in. Any of her stories from being in Palestine? Anything else that you want to share from that period of time? I mean, look, there's, there's definitely a lot of stories. There's um, plenty more stories around that time that I guess important for us to, to kind of get out there and, and get people to understand them. But also probably just as important, I think last time we did a lot of storytelling. I think it would be good to also kind of merge some of those stories with, with a little bit of uh, reflection on, on that, what that means to us. Probably back to, to that period. And, and I think we were speaking about that last time. There's all these phases and all these phases kind of like uh, relate to us as a family and I'm, short a lot of the Palestinian families in so many ways. And 1948 kind of, you know, is the biggest massive impact that, you know, caused this massive disposition to our people. Uh, my mother, uh, who lived this 1948, like the, probably in, uh, in its full, you know, impact with the full displacement in 1948 compared to my uh, father's side where, where they stayed behind. But ultimately, you know, Nakba did impact everybody in, in some sort of way, of course, including people that stayed in parts of the West Bank where they were not displaced at the time, eventually to be displaced. Something that I, I kind of thought about also uh, uh, recently, out of both sides of my uh, parents, no one, there's about maybe 100 descendants from, like, obviously my grandparents to my father's side and my grandparents on my mother's side, and no one. No one from their descendants lives in Palestine. And that tells you something to the displacement. Every time it, the Nakba, you know, obviously commemoration comes, people that have lived in Nakba can't help but remember some of these stories and some of their trauma. And yeah, in, in so many ways, my mum lived this. And, um, you know, she, she's still every, like, obviously, year when around the time of Nakba. Not that Nakba is not like a daily thing that we discussed also last time. It is. However, it is that time of the year where there's definitely a lot of a lot of these reflections. When you think about over a hundred descendants of your grandparents, not one of you living in Palestine, that speaks to the efficacy of the ethnic cleanse. You know, I know you're from Jenin. Then there's the challenge of 1948 and then 1967, and your father was outside of 67. That's is correct. that right? And so then he ipso facto ends up being cleansed the second time. Exactly right. And this is where that is more than, um, it is ethnic cleansing. It's not just a question of displacement. It's a question of wiping out our existence, our presence, our culture. It, it is in every way, you know, trying to uh, displace us and replace us uh, with another people. Uh, I do remember actually another reflection that kind of relates more recent events to, to historical events of Nakba. When in 1990 in Kuwait, I was living in uh, an area called Salmiya in Kuwait, uh, in a street called uh, uh, Salim Mbarak Street. So it's it's kind of, you know, in Kuwait, they used to call streets after uh, 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 like a royal family members. And what's interesting is when the Iraqis came, they changed the names, including the signs of Kuwait. So uh, my street overnight became uh, from Salim Mbarak to Sabatash Tammuz, which means 17th of, of July. And the area became uh, Hayyim Nasser, the area of victory. 
from Salamia, which is after Salem, which is again the the uh, the, uh, the prince. So it tells you that you know the, the Iraqis were trying to wipe out the Kuwaiti names and the connection to the sheikhs and the emirs to uh, uh, the Iraqi narrative, but that that did not continue for much longer than January that year, from August to January, because the world refused to let the Iraqis do this to the Kuwaitis, right? If you compare that to what happened in 1948, the same thing happened, right? So the street names, the areas, even our existence, we were totally, you know, replaced with another people. But, you know, the world did not really do the same thing, right? Uh, unlike what happened in, in the Kuwait War. So we, we are still living that massive sudden change in our existence uh, and the ethnic cleansing, you know, continues to this day, like we discussed last time. Interestingly, you touched on displace and replace us. There's another thing that the Zionists have done, and that's appropriate us. You know, one of the realities, as you see now, Israeli restaurant mm-hmm. selling Israeli falafel and Israeli couscous and uh, Israeli tahini, as if, you know... And hummus uh, and shakshuka and uh, even kunafe, I've, I've actually seen more recently, uh, become Israeli all of a sudden. But, so not, not content with taking our houses, and there's been an estimate, I spoke about it in the intro, that the value of real estate and economic total worth of Palestinian refugees that was left behind in 48 exceeded a billion dollars in 1951 was the valuation put on it. So not content with taking our land, our houses, our hopes and dreams, they're now appropriating to the point now, the kefir even. Uh, absolutely. Cultural appropriation in every way. The, the Palestinian talk, the, the traditional dress, um, you know, LL used to, to, I'm not sure if they still do today, but they, there's been a period where they used to wear it as their cultural dress. Uh, the kefir, like you said, you know, in so many ways, it's about, you know, the culture, the food, even the, the, the music. It's, it's crazy how, you know, it's trying to totally replace us. Um, which is, in a way, you know, pr- proves the fact that they were a vibrant, uh, massive culture, that they strongly feel that this is actually means something and they want to take it for themselves, unfortunately. But I think it's a little bit hard to, to wipe us to, to that extent. We still exist. And I think that that kind of, you know, pains them in so many ways. Isn't there, there's a Darwish poem that said, you, you might have beaten us in 1948 and 1967, but in beating us, you made us famous, and we're not going anywhere. Absolutely. Uh, I do remember that poem. Uh, and there's like a lot of poems that, um, you know, a lot of the uh, Palestinians, Palestinian uh, writers, you know, reflected on that resilience. One of those, like, actually worthwhile mentioning now that you mentioned it is Murid Barghuthi's, uh, one of his books. It's not a poem, but it's a book that says, I'm from here, I'm from there, which is a great reflection about that sense of identity and belonging to, to a home and a homeland, that has, you know, obviously been severely uh, uh, severed with, with, with Nakba. Um, and this is something that we've also been discussing uh, since last time as well, where that sense of belonging, you kind of, you know, because of what happened, that, you know, displacement and replacement, the disposition, makes it so weird for us to really feel that we belong to our own place because we're kind of not quite belonging there because we can't even go there. If we go there, we go there for a visit. Uh, some can't go there or can't go to their, you know, uh, hometowns, uh, particularly people in refugee camps that can probably even, you know, sit for mm-hmm. the Palestine period. 
but we're, we're talking about people that can't really belong to where they live. They can't belong to probably where they're born, like myself. I was born in Kuwait. I don't, I don't call that home. And, and, and I know that last time I probably spoke about Kuwait in, in so many ways, but probably one of the better countries in the Gulf these days in terms of their uh, position uh, uh, on the Palestinian question. Uh, but overall, for us Palestinians, we don't feel that we have that sense of strong belonging to a specific homeland. We feel very strongly about Palestine because of that connection, because of the cause. Uh, but for our children, for our relatives, especially when you're talking about you know, families that are nearly everywhere in every continent, it, it, it is quite sad. We're talking about families in Nakba, my own family uh, in Nakba, where I know that some that used to live in the north that went to live in refugee camps, some that were living uh, in the north that moved towards Syria and were actually in, uh, were in Yermuk, uh, some that stayed behind in Jenin, some that, you know, are in Australia, some that are in Kuwait, some that are in, you know, Americas, they're everywhere, right? And I know that we're not unique in that, but this is where even for years after Nakbas, a lot of these families did not see each other for years and years. Uh, and this is why Nakba is really personal. It's actually very, very personal for us. Well, it's so personal. And you, and you were talking about the geographic dispersal of the Palestinians. I mean, and you said not unique. I'd say that the vastness of our dispersal is unique. I mean, the Armenian genocide and what happened to the Armenians, but they've largely stayed pretty close by. They've been despised uh, as much as we have, um, but they're very strong in the United States, etc. But from a geographic dispersal, we're, we're everywhere. I mean, the biggest communities outside of, you know, the collar countries of Lebanon, Syria and Jordan are in South America. And they're Palestinians that were pre-48 Palestinians. They were economic migrants that, you know, went to make their fortunes in the 20s and 30s and ended up in the 40s not being able to go back and so have established, you know, huge colonies of Palos, if you will, in uh, El Salvador, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But from a dispersal point of view, we're huge. And then what that does create is that disconnect. You know, the, the reality that I grew up away from my cousins, that you grew up away from half of your family, perhaps even more in Kuwait compared to the rest of them being in Homeland. And then how, yeah, do, how does that affect us in a familial sense? How does it affect us from opportunities to you know, for marriage, for education, for even for things like Eid or Christmas or, you know, whatever it might be that are generic family get-togethers, those opportunities don't exist for, for many, many Palestinians. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, even in like, uh, not just in these like, you know, good occasions, but even in, in, in sad uh, situations, oh, where yeah. I remember like before a lot of the technology, there used to be a hotel in Jordan because of the, you know, lack of the ability to have any communication between, uh, like, uh, you know, our hometowns in Palestine and, and where a lot of the people lived because of the boycott, right? Um, there used to be a hotel in Jordan that anyone who leaves Janine or leaves Jerusalem or whatever, like, that has families in other Gulf states, they used to stop by in that particular hotel and say, okay, we're leaving that message to these people. And, you, they used to call collect at the time to give you the news. And usually that news was bad news. And you know, in the Arab world, they usually don't tell you somebody died. They tell you somebody is critically ill. But usually that meant this person has died, right? Yeah. So um, I remember when my father died. And, and my father died when I was young. I was lucky to have lived seven years with, with, with him. But he died of a car accident. And this is how 
um, uh, his, his siblings knew. Uh, there was a phone call from this hotel that says, you know, your brother Khaled is, you know, is critically ill. They knew immediately that something seriously wrong has, has, has gone bad. Same thing when my grandfather died, the same hotel. It's actually called Riyadh Hotel, Fundukh Riyadh. And, and I, I remember like every time there's a call from that, that hotel when we were in Kuwait, that was a disaster. So nobody would like to, to know what, who, who is next. Yeah. And this, is, this is kind of tells you how Palestinians live because of the displacement that was part of it. I remember my, my grandmother, who used to come and, and visit us in Kuwait. This is my, my uh, paternal grandmother. She used to, uh, in our uh, home in Jenin, we used to have like a, a, a big backyard. She planted the trees herself, um, which is very typical. And when she used to come to Kuwait to visit her, um, her sons and daughters, she used to not be able to stay away from the homeland for more than two or three weeks because she said, you know what, you are my sons and daughters, but you know, my trees are my sons and daughters too. I need to go back. I, I can't live away from them. This is also my family. Uh, and it's weird, I know, but it, it is where the Palestinian older people could not really leave their homeland because I think part of them was scared of leaving their, you know, houses behind and dying away from their homeland was like a big thing for them. And they strongly felt about, you know, protecting the land and protecting the trees and protecting their homes because they knew that, you know, one day the rest of the family should come back. Yeah. And which is, you know, the, the international symbol for Nakba is the key, yeah? The right of return is sacrosanct. It's, you know, enshrined in UN and international law that uh, Palestinians have an inalienable right to return. Absolutely. And, and probably this is the third theme. So we spoke about the concept of a home and, and, and like that sense of belonging that's not there, the Nakba being very personal. But probably the third thing that is very strong for Palestinians is that strong belief that we are going back. Uh, that, you know, the question of returning... Uh, it is not, you know, a, a, a question of if, it's actually when. I think we strongly believe that, you know, we are returning. I personally don't believe that this will be another ethnic cleansing. This will be, a, a, you know, a way of us uh, finding the right way to, to live together, uh, provided that everybody is willing to accept the wrong and, and you know, take measures to, to correct them. But we, I think if you speak to any refugee or any person in this borough or any Palestinian, I think that strong sense of believing that we will return uh, is, is, you know, is a fact. It's, it's not like a wish or a hope. We had Tarek Bakri on the show a couple of weeks ago, but he, he helps refugees, but the, the children and often the grandchildren and even great-grandchildren of 48ers go back to their villages. And he says, you know, he's amazed sometimes the, it's the third or fourth generation, they're in their 20s, and they go, okay, where's the well? Oh, here's the well. Uh, I've just got to walk up here. That's where the mosque used to be. Turn left. There's the, there's the olive grove. This is where our house is. The intimacy and intricacy, but also the depth of knowledge of their ancestral village that has been bulldozed. So they're going back to ruins, I mean, that the kids, you know, a great-grandchild can take the actual footsteps back to the birthplace of their great-grandparents. Uh, absolutely. Look, I mean, I have been involved with the youth, as you know, for, for a number of years. And what I've been finding is that the more they know about their uh, identity, uh, about where they truly belong, I mean, they, they're, you know, as Australian as, as they come, to be honest. But the moment that they understand the Palestinian identity, that becomes extremely 
important to them, the passion starts growing. And the moment that they actually go for a visit, and you know, we've been involved in uh, helping few of them go and visit, it, it's just a transformation. They fall in love with the place. It just becomes a lifetime mission for them uh, to really help do something about it, uh, become active, you know, do charity work, activism, and and this, that strong of that sense of returning becomes so strong. It, it's amazing. There's like it's it's hundred percent. Every single person that goes back there and and smells the land and you know get a sense of like what it feels to to really connect with your homeland. It's just magic. It's amazing. It is amazing. Uh, my brother and I took our boys late last year. And uh, it was my nephew's first time, but my children's, I think, fourth time. And But each time they're a little bit older and they were, you know, 17 and 16 or something last year. But the smells are our smells. The sounds are our sounds. The food is our food. The the people are our people. I mean, it's it's a... It's a, a different thing as a here we are as settlers on ethnically cleansed land. You know, we are settlers on indigenous land that was never ceded as a, in Australia. That when we go back home to Palestine, you get that feeling that you're home. You feel your roots, the, you know, the air smells different, the bread tastes different. Everything is like it's supposed to be. Absolutely. And look, I mean... You mentioned Tare, and I love his work. And I, and I think Tare is a reflection of a lot of the Palestinians over there uh, and how generous they are and, and how amazing the resilience is and how welcoming they are when they hear of Palestinians that probably never set foot uh, in Palestine before. Uh, but, but they feel like, you know, they, they make us feel as if we've never left, right? Uh, my kids included. Um, I was speaking actually to, to my daughter recently about this question, and, and I told her if like how do you feel being Palestinian and she said extremely proud uh, and I said to her have you always felt that way and she said you know what to be honest when I was so young um, and look I mean obviously our household is, is very active there was always been things happening for Palestine um, and she said you know what I was not sure but the moment that I started to learn a lot more about it I become, became like a lot more interested but I became super proud the moment I've actually went to Palestine it just became I wouldn't want to be anything else but Palestinian um, and I think the same thing with my son with Khaled I think both of them the moment that they go to Palestine they transform they they want to try everything they want like you know they become uh, um, you know true Palestinians immediately yeah. and they connect immediately with the people and the people are extremely generous and the people are extremely hopeful and honestly I feel when I get there hope a lot more than being here and talking to people in Australia or talking to people in Jordan or talking to people anywhere else. In Palestine, these people believe that they will be free. They know they will be free and they act that way, which, which makes it really amazing when you go there, you get a dosage of energy that is, you know, and, and these are the people facing a lot of that occupation and aggression and oppression on daily basis. And they're the most hopeful, the most positive. From my perspective, you get a sense that it, it, it only, our hand is outstretched. Our hearts are open. All it needs is reciprocation and not oppression. What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I actually had this conversation again recently. Um, I was having a conversation with uh, one of the friends who I have not seen for a while. And uh, in a recent visit, uh, we connected. 
Um, and as usual, he was very positive. And uh, I said to him, okay, well, you know, people are talking about this whole thing about, you know, the two state and the one state, but would you be willing to live with the other side? And he said, absolutely. Um, uh, look, you know, we live with the other side, not, you know, by them trying to replace us, but by them, you know, being, you know, part of us. But, you know, the, the issue for us is not like the one state or the two state. The, the issue for us is that, you know, you're willing to accept me, accept my rights. This is purely a, a, a rights question. And we're absolutely, we're already living in a one state, he said to me. He said, you know what, it's, it's, this is reality and it's absolutely right. So I don't think this is something that will be difficult for our people to accept. I think it's much harder for the other side to accept because by definition, like you rightly said at the start, it was a program of ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, to, to us, it, it is definitely going to be much easier to accept the other side, uh, provided that we're equals. I, I think this is not negotiable. We're not going to be, which is really what the whole two-state solution is really uh, about. It's about creating a subservient, you know, people in authority, which is a lot of our people will not be accepting. I know some are, who are the beneficiaries of, you know, that setup. Uh, but certainly uh, the, the Palestinians uh, in the streets w- will not. And I can tell you, this is the overwhelming, probably more silent majority uh, that will be willing to accept. They probably see it already. This is the reality. And they're waiting for, for the time for this to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, we've spoken about it before, but it's Zionism's conundrum because the the book and the ethos and the ideology was we want uh, to be Jewish and democratic in all the lands of Israel. And all the lands of Israel today mean, you know, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. You can't have all of the land and be Jewish and democratic. You can't have all three. They can have any of the two, the land and Jewish, but not democratic, the land and democratic, but not be Jewish, Jewish and democratic, but they can't have all the land. The problem is that Benjamin Netanyahu is maybe more evangelical than those crazy Christian preachers on Sunday morning out of the deep South in America. He thinks he can have it all and that the world's going to stand by. I mean, we're increasingly seeing now uh, we had over 120 MPs in England send a letter to Boris uh, Johnson saying, if Israel annexes the West Bank or parts of the West Bank, we need to uh, apply sanctions. Uh, you know, Gideon Levy wrote an article in Haaretz over the weekend. He said, it's already one state. Let him, let him annex. Annex away. The sooner the rest of the world knows that it's one state and it's an apartheid state, the sooner we can move forward. What do you think? I think it's already an apartheid state. Well, just, right, just to start with re- reflecting on, on the uh, you can't be all three. Uh, well, for a fact, Israel has never been a democracy. It has always been an ethnocracy. So it is democracy for the Jewish people, not democracy for the citizens of the land. And this is the challenge that I guess, you know, again, you know, back reflecting on families, the fact that were, they were displaced because they had to make this happen by clearing the land of its people, indigenous people, to make way for, to create a state that has, you know, at least... And, and in 1948 itself, I think the Palestinians was, was still around 55% for a period of time, at least until they, they managed to kick out for weeks after 1948, uh, more Palestinians to, to kind of have that numeracy uh, majority, or not majority, actually, like to try and tip the numbers to their side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Israel has never been a democracy uh, and to, in, a, in a large sense, what's happening right now is fast-tracking, making it more visible, making yeah. an apartheid which has already been there for a while, 
a lot more visible. And to be honest, in, in, in one way, I think the whole two-state solution, Palestinian Authority has misled the world for far too long, led them annex away, uh, led them really be clearer about who they are and what they are. In, in, in so many ways, I think Netanyahu did a lot of service for the Palestinians to really demonstrate the ugly Zionist state that it is uh, in front of the world. And, and in so many ways, his contribution to that image has been very clear in front of the world. But again, there's so many other factors that probably played part, including the fact that Israel has no other option but to continue with the oppression. I mean, the, the more people want to be free, the more the oppressor tries to uh, suppress uh, that, those requests for freedom. So there's no other choice but to be more brutal. Um, I guess they, they, they have no choice. But you're absolutely right. The more are actually annexing and the more they explain that it is apartheid, I guess the world will have to take action. And remember, Israel was born, you know, in that colonial world. I mean, from day one in 1917, when it was promised, it was again a colonial promise uh, to another colonial, you know, uh, baby that, you know, they wanted to, to be born. Um, and it was, still continues. It is the colonial settler entity that still operates the same way, you know, it was designed in 1917. And it's no longer the right, you know, formula when you're talking about majority of the people today are actually the Palestinians. I mean, the numbers today tells us that in historical Palestine, there's more Palestinians. If you can, you know, Gaza, which and all Israel tries to kind of, you know, says we have nothing to do with it, which is absolutely not true. Um, and, and if you add the West Bank and, you know, Palestinians that live today as Israelis, we're talking about, um, you know, the numbers tipping in the Palestinian way. So it's already in apartheid. It's just a matter of time for the world to come to grips with it and starts doing something about it. And hold it to account. Amin, thank you so very much. Another fantastic show. And we look forward to you joining us again in the future. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to my guest Amin for joining me. Don't forget to share the podcast and tell your friends and free Palestine.